0: What a joy to, to be with you and uh, to, to be with, I want to say my old friend, I mean that in terms of friend of much maturity and wisdom and stature. And uh, it's really a joy to see him back um, and up and around, sort of. Um, but it's good to be with you, Louise. It really is so a- Your rector and I go back uh, some years, we were both uh, young priests in the Diocese of North Carolina back in the late 70s uh, when he was at St. Peter's in Charlotte um, and I was at St. Stephen's in Winston-Salem. And uh, we, we have a long-standing friendship and, and mutual admiration society. Uh, he's a great guy and you already know that. Uh, but it's, it's a joy to be with you and um, uh, to be here. Um, it's a particular joy to be here this morning. It, it is obviously the second Sunday of Easter, um, and that's a joy. It's always a joy to be in the house of the Lord, but after last night's basketball game, it's even more of a joy. I, just, I, just, I have to tell you, I might as well relish the, the, mo- the Carolina moment because um, Gay Jennings, who is the president of the House of Deputies, as you may or may not know, the Episcopal Church Um, um, has a bicameral legislature when it comes together as the general convention. And so you have the House of Deputies, which is clergy and lay people representing the various dioceses and then the House of Bishops. And the House of Deputies is considerably larger. Uh, Obviously, there are more lay people and clergy than there are bishops. Um, And the House of Deputies is a little bit more technologically savvy. Um, We sometimes refer to the House of Bishops as the Quill Pen Society, which it really is in a lot of respects. We still count. Um, elections by paper ballot. Um, the deputies do it electronically. But anyway, President Jennings, who's the president of the House of Deputies, um, and I decided to bet on last night's game uh, because she grew up in Syracuse, and I hail from, from North Carolina, and so we decided we would bet on the game and invite people to uh, put money on, on us. And um, and that all of the money would actually go to support Episcopal Relief and Development, which is really one of the best things this church does. Um, it really is. And so, so actually, I told the, last night at, at dinner, I said, this is kind of like being a millennial where everybody wins, nobody loses. Um, <laughs> and, and so um, Carolina won the game, but she actually raised more money. Um, wait till I see the bishops. Uh, I tell I need you guys to ante up a little bit more when we have these bets, but it really is a, a joy to be with you to bring her greetings and and the greetings of the Episcopal Church. It really is. Matt um, thought maybe what I would do is just share some things and then invite conversation, and you have the mic, and we can and then we can just see where that conversation goes. Um, I really have. Um, I think it's true uh, to say that. Um, I think the Episcopal Church is one of the best kept secrets. Um, Christendom really doesn't exist anymore, but but certainly in the the religious world um, in our culture. Um, And I say that not as a matter of of false pride or anything like that, but I say that because I really do believe that at our very best, uh, now we don't get it right every day, we don't get it right all the time, but at our best, um, this is a church where you can come to know um, Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, who liberates life, who, who is grounded deeply in the love of God, um, and who can have a joyful face. Um, this is a church where you can follow Jesus and you don't have to get beaten up along the way. And you know, that's a real. Con- I think that's a real contribution in our culture and in our time, um, because very often um, um, the face of Christianity is um, often not seen as the face of that which is grounded in the love of God. Um, and I'm beginning to realize that even more, every time I watch Pope Francis, um, my, my only uh, uh, upset with Pope Francis is that he really wasn't good for business um, because as long as his predecessors were in office when I was Bishop of North Carolina, I was receiving Roman Catholics left and right. They were just, I, I just said, Benedict, keep them coming, keep them coming. We're, <laughs> Uh, but as soon as Francis got in, that pipeline has kind of slowed up a little bit. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's fascinating for a variety of reasons. I mean, he's the Pope, so don't expect him to do, you know, some things. But, but, but there's something about this guy that um, is authentic, that's genuine, that's real. You may disagree with him on some things, but you know he actually loves and cares about people. And what fasces, fascinates me about him is that he's making news and he hasn't said anything unique. He hasn't. He's only said and done what the gospel already tells us to do and what Jesus would bid us to do as his followers. But the fact that it is news that he is doing it tells us the perception of Christianity is not very often what Jesus actually taught. And that's why I say there's really a sense in which we need a counter version, a counter narrative of what it is to be Christian of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I believe this church um, at our best, again, we're not perfect, but this church at our best um, can and often does provide that counter narrative, um, a counter narrative that I think at our best comes close to the love of God that we know in Jesus Christ. And that matters, that matters profoundly. Um, we, we saw that in, in, when I was in North Carolina um, and, and a few years ago, there was a, a, a proposition on the, um, um, uh, to amend the state constitution. This was going on in a number of states, but to amend the state constitution to limit marriage um, and, and any legal relationship um, to persons of different genders. And it was going to be in the state constitution, uh, it was Amendment 1 to it, and it was highly controversial. Um, and, and eventually did pass. Um, and Eventually, the Supreme Court has now taken care, remedied that, but it did pass. And so the diocese and the, the people, I was very outspoken um, in opposition to that for a variety of reasons. I won't go into all of that now, but for a variety of reasons, um, but those reasons based in the gospel of Jesus and the love of God, um, that's the basis on which we stood and stand. Um, and the Episcopalians in North Carolina pretty much, for the most part, were supportive of that, even if they disagreed with the question of marriage. uh, Many of them um, disagreed with enshrining any form of discrimination in your state constitution, even if they weren't in favor of same-sex marriage. Um, And so that that was sort of where we were, and um, the clergy, the congregations, and the diocese was known for that. What I didn't realize was how countercultural that was on some other level. I knew that we live in, were living in the former Bible Belt. It's not the Bible Belt anymore, but it was the former Bible Belt, and, and you remember that that's in the air. It's in the atmosphere. Um, but what I didn't realize was how profoundly, how profound the pain I believe that we have often inflicted as Christians on other people. Um, I had younger members of my staff um, in the communications department in the diocese, and they kept saying, we need to get you out there. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, doing, you're talking and you're going around, but the problem is you're speaking to the choir. Um, you, you know, you're speaking to the people who already agree with you, and they're all your age. And I said, back up on that age thing, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> and, and so they said, you need to get, we need to get you to different populations of people. I said, well, I don't know how to do that. Uh, well, there was a campaign that was going on. It really was kind of a subterranean campaign. I didn't even know it was going on that was called Vote Against. Um, and it, it basically was all young adults who were involved in it, and they were all over the state. And what they would do is take pictures of themselves in um, T-shirts that said Vote Against, referring to Am- Amendment 1. And there, there was a, a brewery in Durham... Um, where they were uh, taking these pictures and and, uh, there was this young guy who was posting these and it was all over various forms of social media. I didn't even know it was like an underground, it really was like an underground railroad kind of movement. I didn't know it even existed. It was reaching thousands of young people in the state of North Carolina and around the country. So they said, you need to go take the picture. So I said, okay, I I I have to admit I debated because there was a part of me saying, I'm not sure if it really is a seemly thing for the Bishop of North Carolina to be in a T-shirt with "Vote Against." I mean, it was really more a matter of aesthetics, not the politics of it. I just wasn't sure, and I had to. I said, "Well, doggone it!" Somebody said, "Well, what would Jesus do?" I said, "Don't bring him into this," Uh, you know. Don't. So finally, I just kind of agreed and 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 went ahead and did it. And went um, on a Sunday afternoon um, with a couple of clergy, and we went in and we had collars on and. We went into the brewery. There had to be 300 people in, in the brewery. We walked in, and the place, it just felt absolutely silent. And it kind of took me aback a bit. And I remember leaning to one of the cannons, and I said, what just happened? And he said, I think we walked in here. And I still didn't get it. And we went on in, and you know, eventually took the, the pictures and did all of that, and people kept thanking us, congratulating us. And when we left, there was a barbecue truck outside. I said, I want some barbecue. And, and, and so went out and got in line to get, get my barbecue. And the gentleman who was ahead of us bought our barbecue. And I said, no, you don't have to do that. And he said, no, you don't understand. You don't have to be here. We get called everything by the Christian community. We haven't heard the Christian community stand up for us. You didn't have to come here, and you're here. And he bought our barbecue. And I realized, though I knew it before, but I realized how profoundly we have, whether intentionally or not, I'm not judging that. We have hurt people and hurt people deeply. And we need another way of being Christian one that looks something like Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Pope Francis has done. It's not exactly what he said. It's the spirit in which he says it. And that's been news and good news. And I believe that this Episcopal Church is and can be even more powerfully good news in our world and in our culture. And we may not always get it right. We'll make our mistakes. In fact, we, we specialize in mistakes. We do that very well. Um, <laughs> but you know, doggone it, as my angelo says, wouldn't take nothing from a journey now. And so that's kind of who I believe we really are as the Episcopal Church on some deeper levels, and why it really is kind of a joy to be a part of it and to be presiding bishop of it and to share in this work and ministry. It's really a remarkable journey. I mean, you don't know how good you really are. We really are. And that can make a profound difference in this world. So I, 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 maybe I should stop there. Maybe that's a good place to kind of stop and invite conversation. And I'm, I'm game to talk about everything from nuclear physics to the Anglican Communion. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about one and very little. Well, I know something about the other. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, but maybe that's a good place. And that's. You, sir. Yes, sir. Bishop, uh, Phyllis Tickle, in her book The Great Emergence, uh, expressed a belief that we're in the middle of another reformation yes. as far as religion is concerned. Do you see the same thing? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, that, um, I mean, he was saying that Phyllis Tickle, uh, who just died re- recently, um, um, a remarkable woman, um, but she, in her book, The Great Emergence, um, basically said, and she was quoting Mark Dyer, who used to teach here at Virginia, at Virginia Seminary, who said, if you look at the history of Christianity, it's almost as if every five years there's a big reformation. You know, and actually, there is something to that. And, and she said that we are probably, although it's sort of hard to know when you're in the middle of it, living through a profound reformation like unto the 16th century um, and the Protestant Reformation. I was just with the uh, Lutherans and Episcopate and the Lutheran presiding bishop in Montana this past week and they're celebrating the 500th anniversary um, of the Reformation. I think Phil Stickle is right about that. Don't know exactly how it's all playing out, but I think she's right. And you can see some evidence of it. I I grew up, um, you you know, in in kind of a, a, Basically, everybody was Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish. That was pretty much it. I mean, there may have been a Muslim or two. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, the old nation of Islam was kind of around, but they were sort of seen as more fringe. They really weren't. But today, um, I remember when our youngest daughter um, was in like the seventh or eighth grade, and um, I went to, she forgot something, I went to school, and she saw me coming with a collar on. and she kept going, get out of here, get out of here, but, but anyway, I brought, they let me bring her books in the classroom, and I looked in the classroom, and it was clear to me that there were kids of all sorts of religion, not only ethnic groups, but all sorts of, religion. you could tell by the clothes they were wearing, and I remember scratching my head and said, boy, that's not the world I grew up in. Just that fact alone, the the radical reality, the reality of radical pluralism that is just a part of our cultural landscape, that's a game changer. Because at one time, and and while there's still some, and this is where you can see a change happening, at one time um, everybody thought that only their group was going to heaven. Remember? I mean, think about it. I mean, if if you were Catholic, you were going to heaven, but the Protestants weren't. Um, If, I got the Pentecostals in my family, um, they knew they were going to heaven and nobody else was. You know, I mean, that kind of, I mean, there were all these, and even in the Episcopal Church, while we might not have gone that far, the only people who took communion in our church were people who were confirmed. Um, again, that narrowed the group. Um, and so it, it was a different world, a different mindset about just something as simple, who's going to heaven? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find too many people who are going to say somebody's not going to heaven if they're not a Christian, automatically. There's some. But that's, a, that's becoming a smaller and more narrow market share. And when you go into generations, it's like, what are you talking about? Uh, that's just one example. Human sexuality. I mean, that is a game changer. That's a result of a whole host of cultural influences. Um, but the reality is our understanding of the faith is changing in the sense that we are applying the same teachings of Jesus in some new ways in this context. See, I think Jesus figured most of this stuff out. I mean, I really don't think there's that much. I mean, I, the, the command to love God and love your neighbor really does apply across generations. It doesn't matter what the culture, that, that really. but we're learning how to apply that and to live into that differently. All of that is a game changer. Um, even something, and Phyllis mentions this, even things as simple um, as technology, um, uh, social media, um, that may be the, one of the biggest game changers. And that may be the one thing that's profoundly parallel to the Protestant Reformation. Some scholars would argue that the Protestant Reformation was impossible without Gutenberg's printing press. That the printing press made it possible for the individual to have access to the scriptures and other writings without having to go through the mediation of the hierarchy of the church to do it. The printing press. You see, it was almost a social media in the 16th century. You wouldn't have had the Protestant Reformation and probably the Enlightenment without it. Think about the impact of this, of this, <laughs> and, and, and w- whether Apple or you know, uh, Android or whatever, whatever you call them, the reality is that is such a game changer. People no longer need the mediation of the hierarchy of any religious tradition to have access to spirituality, religion, and God. They don't actually need have to go through us to get there. And I remember a rabbi, a, a friend of mine who's a, a rabbi, um, turned me on to a book called um, uh, Playlist Jerusalem, uh, pr- a playlist, playlist Judaism. And it's a little book, it's really quite good, but basically, this particular rabbi, he's coming from a Jewish perspective. Um, he was saying that one of the problems they're struggling with is people basically approach their religion and spirituality in the same way they do their music. And he's right. I mean, I don't listen to entire albums anymore. I pick the songs I want from this one, pick the songs I want from that one. And he said, that's what folk do with spirituality now. And we have a whole host of generations. I don't know what they're called after the millennials. They're, that's how they've grown up which means there's no single package that comes their way. They pick and choose what they want at a particular given moment. That is a game changer in the religious enterprise. Now, I would argue, it doesn't mean we're out of business. Oh no, to the contrary. I think it was Archbishop Michael Ramsey. Um, I see Carol Cole Flanagan in the back. She may correct me, or one of the clergy, but I think it was Michael Ramsey Uh, who said there is a God-shaped hole at the center of every one of us and nothing will really fill it and satisfy it except God. Human beings have always been and will always be on a quest for the transcendent reality that is the source of us all. We're all looking for our mother and we can try little substitutes nothing will satisfy except the real reality. And so it does mean we've got incredible work to do and opportunities, but it's in a whole new ballgame. And so Phyllis is absolutely right, and um, that's what's exciting about, about this time for the Episcopal Church. Mike I thought I was in Washington. I right. thought we were welcome to DC. Uh, the, the question was that the House bill in, in, in North Carolina with regard to public restrooms and facilities and, and all of that, um, how soon or do I hope or think it would be repealed or or what would happen? I don't know. Obviously, I don't really know, but I hope it will be repealed. Um, I don't know what the routes are to do that, whether it has to be a referendum. Um, I'm not... Uh, optimistic that the state legislature itself would do that unless the pressure gets so much to the point that there's a grass, and that could happen, that there's a grassroots root swell um, that could push the General Assembly to, to, to reverse itself. And that could be done. And the outside pressure could do it because there's enough, North Carolina is not, my, my family, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and my grandmother um, and her side of the family, I mean, maternal grandmother is from eastern part of North Carolina. Um, and, um, we used to, I used to say, we used to winter in Buffalo and summer in North Carolina, which is, which, which actually tells you a lot about my family, but anyway, that's all, uh, but it's, um, there, there is a real sense in which North Carolina, which has a history of being a progressive Southern state, um, of being, um, a, the kind of state that, uh, there were forward thinkers, uh, who helped build that university system, um, I'm um, not into a basketball titan, but, but really into a world-class university system. And that was intentional. That was how you pulled a whole state out of poverty. That was how you moved forward. And there were thinkers and people who were thinking that way and really did build those systems. and Duke, um, Anyway, that whole tradition was North is North Carolina. We had a takeover of our General Assembly after this last census when the lines were when the district lines were redrawn and so the population of north carolina which is much more moderate than we're seeing in our legislature um i would say moderate to mildly progressive not you know i mean if you're in durham chapel hill of course it is but i mean i have to remember jesse helms when we were when we were in north carolina jesse helms uh, there was a debate over how to uh, about starting the north carolina zoo and they wanted to try to figure out where to put it and they eventually put it in ashboro um, but there was this debate about where should it go and Jesse Helms in one of his moments. have um, you all remember Jesse Helms? Uh, he, he said on his talk radio show, uh, he said, all you have to do is put a fence around Chapel Hill and you have the North Carolina Zoo. But anyway, <laughs> so you've always got this tradition and, and North Carolina does. You know, We would send Jesse Helms and Terry Sanford to the Senate at the same time. And, but that, that was us. There was this mixed variety and people learned how to function together. The takeover after the census and after the lines were redrawn was pretty rigid and pretty, it's going to take a while to undo that. And the courts have helped a little bit, but not enough to change the state legislature. Um, uh, for example, a number of Episcopalians who were in the legislature were out. They were drawn, their line, they were, Their districts were carved up. Asheville, which was um, clearly a, a very liberal bastion, was carved up. Um, And so what has happened is you've actually got a legislature that's not actually in sync with the actual population of the state, but the way they did the lines. So I don't have a lot of hope for the legislature repealing itself on its own. In fact, that wouldn't happen. But if the money interest and the corporate interest, they don't care about the state's reputation, but if the money interest and the corporate interest and jobs get affected, then you got a whole nother thing going. Um, and that's always been true with social change anyway. Um, it's really been when, when the pocketbook was affected, the hearts changed. And I think that may make a difference um, in the long run. Um, the long run is, is getting those lines redrawn um, or coming up with a better system to do that. I hope it's repealed. <laughs> question of a vision, my vision, or hopes for um, our relationships as the Episcopal Church with um, especially churches, uh, the, the Anglican churches on the continent of Africa. The, um, I, one of the things that I'm very aware of is that if you try to define what is the Anglican communion, organizational language won't do it. Now there's always this push to create more organizational structures for it, but it didn't come into being as an organizational entity. For good or ill, it kind of went with the British Empire. Um, It was sort of the church wing of that. For good or ill, that's just the way it was. But, But part of the reality is that the Anglican communion is not so much an organizational structure or entity, though it has some of those elements. It actually is a network, almost a global community of relationships, that were born in a common common Christian heritage, deriving from England, um, and that got developed and nurtured in mission relationships over the the centuries, actually. And so as a result, those relationships are the key to what the communion actually is. Some of those relationships have been frayed. There is no question about that. But most of them are intact. Most of them actually are not only intact, but they're actually thriving. Um, I can tell you for a fact that that on the continent of Africa, um, the uh, the majority of um, the dioceses and the provinces in the continent of Africa have not broken a relationship with the Episcopal Church. They disagree. Many of them disagree with us, but they've not broken a relationship. Um, there are three, I think, that have, and they're big, no question about that but that's not the majority. And that's kind of important to remember, and that's true if you go around the globe as well. And, and so I was at the primates meeting and all the, the, the primates um, who were the, 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 the spiritual um, heads, if you will, of, of, of their provincial churches, we were all there, we were all in the same room. Um, it was clear that, that um, we were an issue and you know, that there was like no, there wasn't even an elephant in the room. I was in the room. It was just sort of, was, you know, that was clear. And yet we're in relationship with the majority of the primates that were in that room. And I think that is true. And I know for a fact that everything from our shared work through Episcopal Relief and Development, the kind of work that goes on between congregations here and congregations around, around the world, and I saw, I saw something from the Bishop of, of Jerusalem um, in the, I think in the sacristy or wherever I was vesting, and I know you've got relationships in South Africa. I saw some pictures at, at, at your home. I mean, those, those kind of relationships are actually happening all over the Episcopal Church with churches in Africa, Asia, um, South and Latin America, and they have been ongoing. Uh, t- two weeks ago, I was the, um, the UN Commission on the Status of Women um, gathered, and Anglican and Episcopal women um, from the Episcopal Church and, and the Anglican Communion came together um, and um, from su- Southern Africa and from the continent of Africa and around the Communion. And they spent their time working around the United Nations, doing some lobbying and doing some work for uh, a number of issues that affect women and children, um, in particular, um, and anti-poverty work. Um, I mean, there are people here who will know better than I that If you want to really engage the Sustainable Development Goals, which are kind of following the Millennium Development Goals, toward the abolition of poverty, which is actually possible. That's not a pipe dream anymore. It's actually possible, and the goal of the Sustainable Development Goals, which are just kind of coming out of the station, if you will, is to actually abolish poverty on the planet by 2030. This is actually possible. It's not a pipe dream anymore. Um, but they were working on those kind of issues. One of the critical ways of doing that, of intervention, is women and children. If you emancipate women, if you empower women, if you enable them to to, to have the funds and the money and the business acumen to to do what they do, they will raise their families, they will raise the countries. That is the strategic entree into it. The, the women who gathered, Anglican and Episcopal women, knew that and were working on various nation states in the U.N. to make their case um, with other women ecumenically and, and in interfaith groups. That's going to, again, these were women, and they issued a statement afterward that, and I want to say this right, I don't know if I'm, is there a reporter in the room? I just have to be I'm learning, I have to be careful about what I say. Um, but they made a sta- issued a statement that said, we are committed to being Anglican and Episcopal women together because it is important for women to help to change this world. Which was a way of saying, regardless of what the disagreements are in the Anglican communion about human sexuality, children starving to death is something we're going to work on. I think that's the commitment that's going on. That's what I've been saying to, to the... Uh, brothers and sisters around the communion uh we may disagree on some things but we do agree that no child should go to bed hungry and if we agree on that and and we don't have to agree on it on social purposes we can read matthew 25 jesus was clear about that if we agree on that let's go to work on that let's work on what we agree on and we'll figure out the other stuff later Um, and i think that i think that's happening more and more obviously we're in the middle of it, and it will take some time for some. Um, and they may never agree with us. Thank you, sir. Right there, sir. Yeah, this, this oh. is, a, uh, this is a somewhat related question regarding the Anglican and Episcopal situation in this country. Um, we were impressed that Bishop Lee and Tori Baucom in Virginia uh, would, were having uh, close personal relationships and discussions uh, between the Anglican and the Episcopal Church in our area, i 'm um, interested in whether or not any of that is going to be picked up uh, whether you're having you see any room for Anglican and episcopal shared communions I- at the local level not not so much at the global international level. Uh, we have wonderful Anglican formerly episcopal churches in this community that are no longer uh, I, I think of my my children who who have friends who are used to be Episcopalians are now Anglicans and they don 't understand what we 're Doing right. Did anybody hear this? I think so, sir. But you might just wonder. To... I think the real question was, um, how would our, how might our relationships evolve in the years to come between the Episcopalians and Episcopal Church or churches and churches that are identified as Anglican in the United States, the Anglican Communion in North America, and other similar groups who have left the Episcopal Church. Oh, oh I, I thought it was a more objective question. Oh, okay. <laughs> and how I'm going to lead that. Well, it was funny. In the, um, at the general convention, when we were electing a presiding bishop, um, they did something that was really, I mean, I actually feel for presidential candidates when they're in these debates. I, I experience well, the pressure is incredible. They did that kind of, it wasn't a debate, but it was a three-hour grilling of the four nominees for presiding bishop where these kinds of questions were just coming. It was just, it's enormous, incredible pressure. Well, one of the questions I got was similar to that, but it was phrased, would you meet um, with um, either dissident Anglican groups in, you know, in the States or others abroad? I said then, and I, I, I still stand by it, I said, I'll meet with anybody. Michael Kerr will sit down and meet with anybody. We may not agree. Now, I'm not saying we're going to agree. Uh, But I'm not going to cut off relationships, human relationships. That doesn't say how we would go forward and how it would all work out. But I believe we can disagree and still love each other. And so I am supportive of really trying to build human relationships between us as fellow children of God and then letting the institutional details get hammered out later. My experience is if you try to fix the institutional stuff and then get the, it just doesn't work. It just practically doesn't work. Um, And so I believe we've gotta be a force for reconciliation but it's gonna take time and generations um, and it's gonna be built on relationships. And so the more of those the better. at the, at the meeting of the primates, there was um, the um, Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America, um, Archbishop Beach, um, who was the group that left the Episcopal Church here in the Anglican Church in Canada. Um, he was invited by the Archbishop of Canterbury to be present. And there was a, a moment when we were sort of all around, and everyone was waiting to see sort of the two of us when we would, you know, how we would meet and what, what would happen. It was just fascinating. I said, wow, everybody's watching us. And... And so I said to him, I said, you know, they're all watching us. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and so we treated each other like human beings. Now, we don't agree. And, they're, you, know, you know, I mean, we didn't sing Kumbaya, but, but we acted like adults and followers of Jesus. And he, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, I had had surgery right before there, a little bit before that. And he had said, I've been praying for you. Um, and I said, were you praying for a swift recovery or, or not? But anyway. <laughs> But but he was very kind and very gracious. Um and I hope that I was as well. And you know, we were that that kind of human relationship um, that I know Bishop Johnson has had here in, in Virginia, in time, that could uh, be the bridge that, that helps us find a way together. Um, yeah, time will tell, but relationships make the difference. Um, say something about race relations and divisions in the last several years and whether it's gotten worse. I don't know how to answer the question of whether it's gotten worse, but it's deeply serious. And the reality of its seriousness, the the depth of of that in our reality, um, keeps presenting itself. Uh, Jim Wallace's new book, which I haven't actually read yet. My wife used to get on me in the parish. She said, why do you quote books that you haven't read? I said, well, not quoting it. I'm just referring to it. <laughs> but, um, but Jim Wallace um, has a new book out. And I know, at least from the little blurbs that I've read, he does talk about, America, about racism in, in all of its various manifestations. I mean, it morphs and takes different forms and shapes. But racism really probably is America's original sin that it takes different forms, and if you remember in, in, in Western theology, the notion of original sin, um, certainly as Augustine even kind of talked about it, is that this is a ubiquitous reality that we all, it's like breathing the air. You can't not breathe it. Um, the question is, what do you do with it when you do? Um, that, that there's just something, that self-centered something that bites us all, and it's just in the atmosphere. Well, Wallace is basically saying that racism in our American sojourn is really part of our originating sin. And a whole host of things kind of flow out of that. It's that deep. And so it doesn't lend itself. And and we've got a whole history that's reinforced it and complicated it and all that. And so it doesn't lend itself to quick fixes. Um, You need legislative solutions. You need that kind of thing. But legislative solutions don't necessarily change hearts and change lives. You got to have both going on at the same time. And so the, the, the work that must go forward um, to have the kind of genuine and serious conversation among us across racial and not just racial, but racial and gender and orientation and social class. I mean, the kind of conversations that we've got to have and the relationships that we must build. Again, like the Anglican Communion, it is the human relationships that are really the game changers. That's going to take work and a lot of intentional work. Um, my hope is that the Episcopal Church will help to be a partner with others in providing leadership for that to happen in our country. Um, um, our general convention really did um, identify the work of evangelism and racial reconciliation as, as the two priorities of this church. Um, I don't think I would have, I think I was elected in part because of that sense of priorities, that this, this is the moment we've, we can make a difference here. And so um, my hope is that we really will commit to the hard work of racial reconciliation and building relationships across the races, across the class divides, across the political divides. And sometimes the toughest, excuse me for saying it this way, the toughest... Um, interracial relationship may between, be between red and blue. <laughs> not just black and white. <laughs> y'all with me, I'm, I'm not sure everybody, yeah. Um, that's the, those are the bridges that we must, and so that's gonna take intentional work. It won't happen, um, you know, just automatically. It's gonna take the kind of intentional work and building of the relationships, but we've committed to do that, and, uh, but it's a longer term, a long term proposition. Am I hopeful? Yes. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I do not believe that we are intrinsically victims of our social fates. Um, We can alter and ultimately change the world. We can. We can't do it all. But we can change it. If that wasn't true, Barack Obama would not be sitting in that White House, and Michael Curry would not be standing in front of you as the presiding bishop of this church. We are not slaves to fate, but fate will not change on its own. It takes hard work, prayer, and intentionality, and it can happen, but it's gonna take a long time. It's gonna be a lot of hard work, but don't give up. Yes. Yes, sir. If it's quick, last question. Thank you, presiding bishop. Uh, We're glad that you're wearing purple, the combination of red and blue. I want to raise a question about youth. As you look at us sitting here at St. John's this morning, most of us are older than 25. What is your vision with our church to establish uh, commitments to youth and so that we can be assured that in the years ahead, this, these pews will be filled and my church in Connecticut will be filled and other places will be filled as we continue to do the work of reconciliation. Thank you, Presiding Bishop. Um, that question's related, sort of, to your question, Phyllis Tickles, which um, the, the, was the first question. It is appropriate. It's appropriate. It? We've got programs and that kind of thing. And as a bishop in North Carolina, we continue. I think we had eight campus ministry, eight campus chaplains serving fifteen campuses. Um and and we always struggled, it was over the years, it was always a struggle uh with house and Council when they get to the budget. Um trying to think, where is the bang for the buck? Um I mean, how do we see the return? And that, that was a legitimate question. How do you kind of know it's paying off? One of the real I think the part of the reality is that we are stuck on some levels having to live out the parable of the sower that Jesus told. Y'all remember that parable where Jesus told the parable he said Um, The spreading of the word is like God kind of just spreads the seed out there and some of it lands on soil and nothing happens. Some of it, the birds get it and some of it actually lands on good soil and takes sprout and blossoms. I think we're going, I think we already are, but much more so going to have to cast the seed and do so effectively and, and responsibly, but have to cast the seed of the word of God, of the teachings of Jesus, of that spirit without the expectation that the return will necessarily increase the numbers of people in our church. Now that is, I know that's a real risky statement. I know that. I mean, I see the rector over there saying, wait a minute, don't, you, don't, don't encourage that too much. we got to have somebody in the pews. I know that. Of course we do. But the reality is, I think we are we are now facing a cultural reality of having to share the good news of the gospel for people who will be hearing it the first time. That is harder work. It's slower work and the return won't be as quick and as easy to see. I have a feeling that our current ways of identifying, are are we growing? or not may not quite work. I mean, the way we figure out if the Episcopal Church is growing, we look at um, ASA average Sunday attendance, and then there's some key, you know, the pro reports have these key, like Easter Sunday, and I don't know what the other ones are, but there are these key Sundays, which we use as indicators of, well, okay, if the numbers are going up, that's good. If they're not, then oops. Um, that may tell us something, but it doesn't tell us what's actually going on with, how are we actually sharing the good news of Jesus? How are we actually spreading the teachings of Jesus? How many people contact ours are we actually? You see, I mean, the, the, there's a sense in which having people in a church on Sunday morning tells us something, but it doesn't tell us all. And we're, with younger generations, we're actually going to have to reach out and evangelize and share the gospel um, without an expectation that they'll necessarily become Episcopalians. One of the things I've said, and I know I'm not completely answering your question, but it's a hard question it, about evangelism. Is evangelism, I believe, in the way we do it as Episcopalians and can em- evolve in doing it. Because, um, I, like I said, I don't have any expectation of Episcopalians on Saturday morning walking out two by twos and knocking. <laughs> Probably not going to happen. So I, <laughs> I'm t- <laughs> but, but, but what I do think will happen and does happen is that if Episcopalians live deeply into their relationships and those relationships actually involve who you authentically are as a follower of Jesus in the Episcopal way, then that relationship with some real intentionality could wear bear fruit and you might be able to help somebody on their journey to God. And in helping and journeying with somebody on their journey to God, they may become a Christian. They may become something else. But it's not your job to determine the outcome. Your job is to join them on the journey into a deeper relationship with God and with others and then let God do the rest. That's what I'm really getting. And, and that's, that's why I have to stumble a little bit in answering your question. But we're going to have to ramp up our efforts on campuses. Um, I know you all do some, the TAP, what do you call it? The theology on tap, where they we, I think the Roman Catholics have a copyright on that, so we can't say that. But um, in in all Christian charity, they have a copyright on it. But but theology on tap, we've got to go where the congregation is and meet them there and share the teachings of Jesus. That's what we have to ramp up. That's what we have to measure rather than how many actually come to church. How many times are we contacting and how many people are we contacting um, and doing the teaching out there? If we ramp that up, which is doing the kind of evangelism. I was just with the, um, Jay Magnus, who's the uh, Bishop Suffragan for Federal Ministries and Armed Forces. Um, in the military, our military chaplains on our college campuses, uh, in the bars, in the taverns, on the streets, wherever they are, we have to go there. Um, and if we do that, we'll be able to measure how we're doing that. If more people find their way to a relationship with God and each other, We will have done our job, and God can do the rest.